Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. In the early hours of a miserably cold and dreary morning, December 26, 1776, the day after Christmas, a company of the 3rd Virginia Regiment of the Continental Army is posted at a crossroads north of Trenton, New Jersey, under strict orders to allow no one to pass. But soon, they are approached by a local, a man living close by. The soldiers are tired, shivering. Under the command of General George Washington, they've just moved through the dark of night with a force of 2,400 troops, fording the ice-choked waters of the Delaware River, preparing for a surprise attack on a Hessian garrison to the south. At first, the local man is unpleasant and irritable. He assumes the soldiers are British. No, no, we're Americans, they explain, fighting for the cause. And a noble one indeed, replies the man, who, introducing himself as Riker, rushes off to his house and returns with food for the men. I know something is to be done, and I'm going with you, he states, turning to a young lieutenant in the company. I'm a doctor, and I may help some poor fellow. Inside of this fateful day, as the Battle of Trenton was waged. Dr. Riker would find himself looking into the frightened eyes of that same 18-year-old officer as he struggled to staunch the bleeding from a musket ball severing an artery. The young man would lose a lot of blood that day, but he would survive, saved by Dr. Riker. And it's fortunate that he did, because that was Lieutenant James Monroe, future fifth president of the United States. In the wars of the European powers, in matters relating to themselves, we have never taken any part, nor does it comport with our policy to do so. It is only when our rights are invaded or seriously menaced that we resent injuries or make preparations for our defense. With the movements in this hemisphere, we are of necessity more immediately connected, and by causes which must be obvious to all enlightened and impartial observers. Hello, folks. It's American History Hit. I'm Don Wildman, your humble host. Thanks for listening. 
James Monroe is our subject for this presidential pod, and I'm glad for it. Doesn't get the attention deserved, in my opinion, standing as he always will in the historic shadows of those shining lights before him. But consider this man's breathtaking resume. Founding father, served in the Continental Army, crossed the Delaware with Washington and nearly died in the battle, studied law under Thomas Jefferson, elected to the Congress of the Confederation, then First Congress. He's a senator from Virginia, governor of Virginia, served as both Secretary of State and War in Madison's administration during the War of 1812, then elected President of the United States in 1816, our fifth chief executive aged 59 upon election. All that you can read in Monroe's first paragraph of Wikipedia. For the subtler tale of this two-term president, best to turn to an expert. And today we have Dr. Brooke Poston from Stephen F. Austin State University in Texas, author of James Monroe, a Republican champion, published by University of Florida Press. Welcome, Brooke. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. James Monroe ascends to the presidency, the last of the Virginia dynasty in what is commonly known as the era of good feelings. Few today can conceive of such a time. Tell me how this period, 1815 onward, gets its name, just for some context. The era of good feelings is frankly usually said with a little bit tongue in cheek Mm -hmm. because if there were any good feelings, they didn't last particularly long. One of the reasons it comes about is when Monroe, after he'd been elected, he took a tour of New England. And this tour was initially supposed to be a private tour. It wasn't supposed to have a bunch of fanfare. It wasn't like a campaign event. But along the way, Federalists in New England, and Monroe was a Democratic-Republican, and these Federalists had not liked Monroe very much over the last 30 years or so because he'd been a dedicated partisan all of those years. Well, the Federalists, they'd essentially looked somewhat treasonous after the Hartford Convention, or they feared that they looked treasonous because it's unclear exactly what they'd done, but they had at least considered siding with England Mm. during the War of 1812. Probably that's a little too strong, but they had not been fully on board with the war effort. Mm. And so they gave this huge fanfare to Monroe, and he was feted and toasted, and people cheered him compared him to George Washington, which was very high praise indeed for anyone in 1817. And one political, one newspaper, and remember at the time the newspapers are all partisan, so this is a Federalist Mm. newspaper, Monroe's opponents, said that this would usher in an era of good feelings. I see. That was a headline. That was a literal headline, (laughs) yeah. So Monroe, he actually was a fan of the era of good feelings, or what he thought the era of good feelings would be which would be effectively a nonpartisan or a postpartisan era. The word he used all the time was tranquility. He wanted everything to be tranquil. He thought that this era of vicious partisan fighting among the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, which he had participated in, should just be a footnote in history and that the country should move on and get past political parties, which, of course, they don't. And that was Washington's ideal. He had warned in his farewell address that factionalism will be the death of this country. And there's certainly an argument to be made of that, especially today. But at that time, really what it was, was the diminishment of the Federalist Party, which had carried forth so successfully for so many years through really four presidents. Well, three of them anyway. You end up with that party sort of going out of style in disarray. As you mentioned, the, the Hartford Convention, we can talk about that another time. But you really end up with the Democratic Republicans, sort of Jefferson's party on top of things at this moment, which is really why there's such a good feeling, because we only have one party at that moment. Right. 
In the broadest strokes, where's America at at this point? We have a lot of Western expansion. Native American transfers have already started. The institution of slavery is certainly being debated. There's a lot of social unrest percolating at that point. Absolutely. In the broadest scope, um, you can kind of think of Monroe's era as a transition from the founding era to either the Jacksonian era, or if you want to get even broader, to the pre-Civil War era. Because Mm -hmm. the United States, going all the way back to the founding, had, if you want to really think about it, the United States had been focused on the Atlantic Ocean and things going on across the ocean. Britain and France during the French Revolutionary Wars, and as Napoleon is defeated in the French Revolutionary Wars, the Napoleonic Wars, and in 1815, the United States can turn its focus internally. And that means both to the West in terms of westward expansion, and it means internally focused increasingly on slavery and the institution and how that is going to be far and away the biggest dividing line from about Monroe's era onward. I don't think it's any coincidence that it's during Monroe's administration where you get the Missouri crisis, Mm -hmm. which is, I don't know if it's the first, but it's one of the big, if you're going to take a step-by-step towards the Civil War, the Missouri crisis is one of the first real dividing points. Republicanism is the operative word of Monroe's presidency. He's gung-ho for Republican ideals, as much as his friend and mentor Thomas Jefferson. But he wants to create a new kind of republic. How so? What does it mean to him? Well, you're absolutely right. You hit it right on the head. Republican Republicanism, that's the word. If you want one word from Monroe, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And it means two things. It means, in the broadest sense, representative government. And Americans today don't think about this, but Monroe was from a time period in which most of the world lived under monarchy. Mm -hmm. And he saw the world in a clash between monarchical governments and republican governments. And that had meant the United States, that had meant the French Revolution, which he very much supported during his presidency, that meant the Latin American revolutions. So he supported Republican government in that way. The other way Republican means is more kind of capital R Republican, Democratic Republican, Jeffersonian Republican. Monroe was a guy who saw his political enemies, Hamilton, John Jay, uh, Rufus King, these Federalists, he did not see them as true Republicans. He saw them and said this all the time. He called them Tories. He called them Royalists. He called them Monarchists. He did not think that they were dedicated to the kind of Republican government that he had. So when he became president, he wanted to make sure that that party of monarchists never came back because he did not think that the rank and file of the United States populace, they were monarchists. And the rank and file federalists weren't monarchists. But those leaders, mm. leaders like Hamilton and Jay and Rufus King, I even like to say, if you think of Jefferson and Hamilton as the main event in you know political partisanship, Monroe and Jay is kind of like the undercard because Monroe definitely really disliked John Jay. And a big part of it was because he did not think this guy was dedicated to Republican values. So when he became president, he decided, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that these parties never come back. You can really characterize the guy, and fairly so to him, I think. He's the last of that breed. He's the soldier in the field fighting for the existence of this country, the founding of this country. But the irony, or at least the twist at the end of it, or in his late 50s here, is that there are all these younger guys coming up. This is the transitional moment of America from what it was purely fought for to becoming a more sophisticated, you know, member of a global community, if not, you know, a more sophisticated society within itself. First term, 1860. Monroe defeats, as you say, a guy named 
Rufus King, who was a fascinating guy to, to read about. I'd never done that before. You know, one never hears much about the opponents in any election. But anyway, founding father from Massachusetts, for those who care. How did Monroe win this election? What are the voters at this time, those white males of America, what are they most concerned about at this time? I think at this time, if you look at the wide sweep, Jefferson had won in 1800. From that period on until about 1812 or so, the Federalist Party was more or less dying out. The Democratic Republicans organized better. Their ideas about government were probably more in line with most Americans. That is, you know, states' rights, a, a slightly weaker central government. Though you can overstate how weak that the Democratic Republicans wanted the national government. They actually wanted a, a little more power in the federal government than Jefferson would have said in the 1790s. And then in the War of 1812, the Federalists made a brief comeback when the war wasn't going well because they were opposed to the war. And then by the end of the war, by 1815, and then by the time that election takes place in 1816, the Federalists have pretty much died out as a political party. And so Monroe faces very little challenge from King. I mean, so little challenge that I'm sure we'll talk about in 1820, he, he was virtually unopposed. But by 1816, I think it's more about the Federalists than it is about Monroe. This is very much a period where if you serve your time and you work up the ladder as an Adams had done, as a Jefferson had done, as a Madison, and now a Monroe had done, you walk your way up to the presidency, right? Nobody skips the line. In fact, there was a guy by the name of William Crawford, who later was Monroe's Secretary of the Treasury, who challenged him in not primaries, but in the caucus system that chose the Republican candidate. And that was very offensive to Monroe, who thought, oh, you're trying to skip in the line. I, you know, I, I, I didn't try to skip the line, although Monroe kind of did try to skip the line in 1808 with Madison. The cabinet he creates speaks to his leadership. I think it's very admirable. He has two sons of founders, John Quincy Adams as Secretary of State, Richard Rush as Attorney General, Benjamin Rush, John Adams, obviously. He must realize that his great role in transitioning from those grand ideals of the nation to something no less grand, but more sophisticated. He needs this broader tapestry, right? I mean, he's now a president. He's got to pull in these different parties together. But geopolitics will have everything to do with it, his, his dealing with France and Britain. And this has something to do with his resume. I mean, the man spent a lot of time overseas doing some pretty heavy duty lifting, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And it didn't always go well. <laughs> in the 1790s, Monroe was made, we would call him ambassador. They called him minister to France during the French Revolution, and he got himself fired from that job, effectively, because he was, as Washington was trying to steer a course of strict neutrality, Monroe wanted a neutrality that would, well, I think it's fair to say he wanted to favor the French a little bit. He wanted to certainly favor the French ideologically, mm -hmm. put the moral support of the United States behind the French. So he got fired from that job. And he is much better during Jefferson's administration because he's in line with Jefferson when he helped with the Louisiana Purchase. He came over there as a minister, a plenipotentiary extraordinary, and helped purchase Louisiana. And then a few years after that, he updated Jay's treaty with failed Monroe-Pinckney treaty, and he negotiated with the British, trying to effectively avoid what will later become the War of 1812, but Jefferson and Madison rejected that treaty. You know, he was kind of one for three in his attempts you know, when it comes to his foreign policy, but he certainly saw himself as a serious foreign policy expert, more so than, say, a James Madison, who had not spent that much time overseas, and maybe even more than Jefferson on, on some level. And so that, I think you see that with him later during his presidency, particularly the Monroe Doctrine. 
I'll be back with more American history after this short break. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The headline of his presidency, or at least the, the, the big subject heading, is the Monroe Doctrine, which is still talked about all the time as a, a kind of reference point to how America fits into this world and how we see the world in our place, certainly in the Western Hemisphere. It all comes from his presidency, or at least it was formalized in that time point. So let's talk about that. The Monroe Doctrine has to do with the fact that America sees itself now as the preeminent power in this hemisphere. The colonial powers who were here before, the French the Spanish, et cetera, are on the outs and uh, good riddance. <laughs> you're, you're not coming back, says James Monroe. How is this instituted? How does he formalize this? So the background here is important, and the background goes all the way back to the American Revolution and the French Revolution. And what was going on in Monroe's administration, really from the end of the Napoleonic Wars on, was the Latin American countries were fighting, declaring, winning their independence mm -hmm. from Spain. And Monroe watched this happening, and he was of two minds. On one hand, just as he'd always done, he wanted to support Republican government because most of these Latin American revolutions were creating republics. Now, how he felt about all of these Latin American republics, he was dubious about how they could be American-style republics, but at the very least, they weren't going to be monarchies. They were going to be representative government. So he looked at this, and he wanted to support these revolutions, but he didn't want to do it militarily. 
the United States was not in a position, unlike, say, when we think of Teddy Roosevelt version, the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, which is very much an aggressive, somewhat militaristic, some would even maybe say imperialistic foreign policy. This is more Monroe trying to throw what he called the moral weight of the United States behind these republics, these budding republics, in a way that the United States had not done during the French Revolution going back to the 1790s. So this is 30 years later. He even told Jefferson in a letter, and Jefferson's at home, and Monticello retired, but Monroe would talk to him at Madison too, and said, can we adopt a bolder attitude towards these revolutionary movements than we did during the French Revolution? And so that's what he and John Quincy Adams, who is his Secretary of State, are working towards. Now, John Quincy Adams is probably... As you mentioned, he's younger. He's a little more interested in American political power, American, we would say today, maybe hegemony in the Western Hemisphere. And so Adams brings this almost realpolitik to it, this idea that the United States is going to kind of dominate the Western Hemisphere. And the two of them work together very well on this issue. First, it starts with Monroe recognizing these Latin American countries, you know, recognizing them as independent, and then it eventually becomes the Monroe Doctrine in 1823, which is kind of a collaboration between Monroe and John Quincy Adams. So is it issued as a policy? I mean, are all the diplomats out there saying, so this is how it goes, folks? That's a good question. So is it policy where the United States is going to take active measures if the British or the French are dipping their toe imperialistically in Latin America? Probably not. It's making it clear what the United States position is, that we are here to protect Republican government. Even in an early draft of the Monroe Doctrine, Monroe actually had support for revolutions going on in, I believe it was Greece, where he was wanting to kind of create the Monroe Doctrine, not just be kind of Western Hemisphere specific, but rather kind of a global protection of republicanism. But again, it didn't necessarily mean that the United States was going to do anything militarily about these revolutions, if that makes sense. And it wasn't challenged, was it? I mean, it was a successful policy. Yeah, I think it wasn't challenged. No, not really. And part of the reason for that is going forward, because let's be honest, the Monroe Doctrine is, you said it yourself, has a long tail, right? We still talk about the Monroe mm -hmm. Doctrine. And initially, though, the Monroe Doctrine was more or less supported by the British because uh, the British didn't want all of these other empires. The British Empire was kind of transitioning to a more you know, mercantile empire, less domination over, uh, you know, foreign countries. So yeah, it, it was kind of at the right time. Yeah. The idea of empire is maturing and changing in, in, a, in a fundamental way due to economics, most of all. I love connecting the dots here with these presidential periods. You know, you can see there's a direct line to go from Monroe straight through to Truman. You know, I mean, it's not the same subject, obviously, but got Truman's domino theory being confronted, you know, the whole idea of communism spreading around the world that has precedent in the Monroe Doctrine, doesn't it? In the, in the idea that America has this right to say to the world, this is how it's going to be, you know, either about ourselves or about the world in general, which is really about ourselves in the end. 
it's a fascinating thing. The other dot to connect is this idea that we were such an engine of republicanism in the world, which was such a threat to so many big powers in the world. This idea of monarchical governments had been going on for centuries. And suddenly comes this upstart America saying, oh, this is a really great, great idea, new way to govern yourselves. That's as threatening to them as communism was to us a century later. Yeah, absolutely. I wish that I could take credit for this, but there's a historian by the name of Jay Sexton, was the first place I read this, who wrote something on Monroe Doctrine, that you can really make a good comparison between the clash between republicanism and monarchy that Monroe was fighting and the Cold War in Truman's mm -hmm. time, as you mentioned. All of these are of limited value, but certainly there's this new way of doing things, and Monroe is as dedicated to republicanism as any Marxist has ever been dedicated to communism. So, I mean, on that level, it does absolutely make sense. And you see it in like the Cuban Revolution, where, you know, Castro or Vietnam, for that matter, Ho Chi Minh, you know, they attribute their desire for revolution to the American Revolution and to America in general. And this sort of gray area where we are no longer supporting that because it's a threat to us now. But that's where it all started, was that we were the revolutionaries. We were spreading it. And Monroe is central to all of that. So back home in the nation itself has taken an enormous expansion under Jefferson's administration, which James Monroe, as you mentioned, had much to do with. We're talking about the Louisiana Purchase. Now, as president, he has his eyes on another territory, that of Florida and Native American lands down there. How do we end up annexing Florida under Monroe? Yeah, the Florida situation is a very thorny, tricky situation. Florida was in the hands of the Spanish had been for centuries. Mm -hmm. And during the War of 1812, there were incursions, Native American incursions, fighting on the border between the United States forces and the Native American groups there. And if you remember from War of 1812, the British had landed at New Orleans and that had created this new general, this new military political superstar in Andrew Jackson. So Andrew Jackson is on the scene in the Southern theater during the War of 1812. And so then Monroe becomes president and things are chaotic in Florida. The Spanish Empire is a crumbling power. Mm. It is the dissolution of the Spanish Empire. It's kind of threats and opportunities for the United States. And there had been more incursions into the United States by Native American groups. And there had been fighting along the border as the United States is, you know, moving and taking more and more territory from Native American groups and also from the Spanish. Then Monroe sent Andrew Jackson down to deal with the Seminole tribes and other various Native American tribes. And... This is one of those weird situations where we don't know exactly what Jackson's orders were. We don't know what Monroe knew. But in the end, Jackson, being Jackson, invaded all of Florida, captured various Spanish cities, and it caused this diplomatic firestorm. And so Monroe and John Quincy Adams back in Washington had to deal with the aftermath of this. Mm. And what do we do with Jackson? Because do we want him to make him an opponent of the administration? No. What do we do? We don't want a war with Spain, because if Spain goes to war with us, they may bring the British into this war. We don't want to fight another war with the British several yeah. years after. So there's all this negotiation afterward. Eventually, Monroe and John Quincy Adams kind of slow play things. That's one of the things Monroe was really good at. He never made rash decisions. Sometimes John Quincy Adams would get annoyed with him because he thought he was he was stalling and not moving quickly enough. But Monroe always had this kind of sense that I'm going to wait and see if any other information comes to light. And then eventually the United States is able to negotiate 
negotiate from a position of strength against the Spanish, and that eventually they're able to acquire Florida because of that. Yeah. In doing so, they've also sort of created the border with Mexico in that regard. That's subtle stuff to come down the line with the Mexican-American War. There's a reason that Monroe is celebrated as a much better than average president, which is about as good as any president can ever get. It has to do with shepherding the nation, of course, through a prosperous period of growth, but it also has to do with overseeing a gigantic controversy having to do with the creation of new states. So let's talk about that other Monroe headline, the Missouri crisis and then compromise. Missouri is, first of all, all about Maine to start with, right? Eventually, absolutely. Initially, Missouri is on its own. And to this point, most of the states that had joined the Union, it was pretty clear whether they would be free states or slave states. Mm -hmm. Most of the free states by this point had been carved off as part of the Northwest Ordinance in which where slavery had been outlawed. The southern states, beyond the initial 13 colonies, they had been carved off from you know southern states, so slavery was already there. Missouri is a little bit different. And so when Missouri came up in 1819, I believe is the first they came up for, you know, trying to get statehood, right, via the rules and the Constitution and the Northwest Ordinance, the question was whether Missouri is going to be slave or free. Missouri had a smaller population and a smaller enslaved population at the time. And this created a political firestorm. Northerners, and this is where it was interesting, because not just Northerners who were Federalists, but also Democratic Republican Northerners opposed Missouri's statehood if it had slavery. And this caused from 1819 to 1821 this, you know, kind of really vicious, brutal back and forth fighting, which Monroe was very concerned that this would create a new political division, a new political party that would be a northern party built on anti-slavery. And he saw this as a threat Mm. to the era of good feelings, to the tranquility, to everything he'd been working for towards this nonpartisan country. And so he began working behind the scenes to essentially broker a compromise. And as you mentioned, the compromise is eventually Missouri comes in as a slave state, Maine comes in as a free state. All of the states, any state north of Missouri from here on out will be free states and any state south will be slave states. And that, as I like to say in my class, that compromise lasts because I'm in Texas. That compromise lasts up until some you know, new state screws it up in the late 1840s. And then, yeah. of course, that state is Texas. Yeah, this whole period is, as you said, sort of the whole thing is antebellum. It's this period of where we're just sort of trying to cap this ongoing controversy, which is, oh my gosh, what are we going to do about this thing? And it's going to blow up, of course, eventually. Even before that, I mean, more basically, you have this, I mentioned in the opening, the Virginia dynasty. You've got Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, all Virginians, all enslavers, all supposedly, you know, torn about this whole dilemma. It's tough to digest, especially in this period we're in now where, you know, this sort of cancel culture kind of thing, how one could be walking or straddling both sides of this issue. But these guys claim to be doing so within their lives, right? Yeah. It is a difficult thing to understand from the perspective of 2023, absolutely, where you have Monroe, who in everything he writes, goes on and on and on about liberty. Uh-huh. In all these threats to liberty, threats to liberty from the British, threats to liberty from the Federalists, threats to liberty here, there. 
it's amazing to hear that and then say, well, you have enslaved literally dozens of people throughout your whole life. And as far as we know, I believe he only freed one slave on his deathbed. And his entire position in Virginia society, in American society, was dependent on the fact that he was of the planter class. I mean, even during the Missouri Compromise, which we're talking about, he has to deal with all of these planter friends and relatives of his who are saying, we can't stop the spread of slavery at Missouri, right? You're going to fence slavery in. So he has to deal with this issue. And we as historians have to deal with the fact that we read this and we say, well, that guy had definitely a different attitude about freedom than makes any sense to us here today. Yeah, Monroe did, somewhat to his credit, during the Virginia Constitutional Convention for a new state constitution in 1828, so this is after he's retired, he did advocate for ending slavery. But he did it from a position of that the federal government should help and should buy off slave owners. And so how dedicated was he to this? You wonder how much attitudes were modeled on England, which had already gone through this quite boldly, where they actually did create a reparations situation, but for the owners, you know, for the master class. And they paid off all those people to an enormous degree, which I only learned about recently, a debt that was being paid off right into the 21st century, incredibly. And it was an amazing situation in England. With Monroe, man, I think that's true. I think there's also this tendency for some of these slaveholders from the founding era who see themselves as anti-slavery, which just seems crazy to us, to convince themselves of things that weren't necessarily true. For instance, Monroe was a a founding member of the, uh, well, maybe not a founding member. I think at one time he was president of one of the chapters of the American Colonization Society, which was a, yeah, which was an organization with the idea that slaves were going to be freed and then either shipped to the West or more prominently to Africa, to Liberia, which yeah. if you know Liberia's capital is Monrovia and it was named after Monroe. Those aren't really practical solutions though. You have to question whether guys like Monroe or Henry Clay or Jefferson who were involved in this, that wasn't a priority. For Monroe, the priority is the white you know, planter class. That's really the priority for him. It's tough. We're finding out as we do these presidential pods that there's just so much to discuss and we're skipping over, you know, enormous amounts of information and experience of this country. But in a noble cause, we're trying to sort of sketch out these careers within their offices. To be, you know, diplomatic about this whole era of of Native American rights, I mean, my Lord, there's a huge discussion to be had just of that. The Cherokee Nation, his dealings with them lead to a Supreme Court case, Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, which eventually led to the Trail of Tears under Andrew Jackson. Two presidencies ago, from now, we're going to have a huge conversation about Jackson 20 years from this point. So much of the stage is set for what's coming up in the 1860s, right? If you just want to talk Jackson, Monroe and Jackson's relationship is fraught, to say the least. Jackson was the bull in the china shop kind of political figure for Monroe. Still is. Yeah, for his entire eight-year presidency, you know, it seems like Monroe is putting out Jacksonian fires left, right, and center, all with the idea of, I don't want a political party to develop around this famous general. You know, whoops, right? Because that's that's exactly what happens in the election after after Monroe. 
It's astonishing to me how it was missed under the last administration that Andrew Jackson's portrait went right up over that mantelpiece. I mean, he's still seen as a symbol of so much that is American for so many people who are Americans. And it all starts back in this time period. I would be remiss not to mention that the Erie Canal was completed at the end of Monroe's administration. The fact that Monroe is the nation's first infrastructure president, does a tour of the states at the end of his presidency, and is the first U.S. president to leave the capital and move about the country in his last year. Seeing the nation, he's had everything to do with building, expanding, maturing. He dies at 73 in 1831. He is the third U.S. president founding father to die on July 4th, which is just incredible to me. Monroe's death on July 4th, 1831, 55-year anniversary, is, and this is a bad thing to say, but it's the perfect day for him to die (laughs) because it's tied to the American founding, but it also lets him be overshadowed by two more famous presidents who died on July 4th (laughs) on the 50th anniversary because, you know, as in everything else, Monroe is going to be in the shadow, particularly of Thomas Jefferson. He didn't mind that. He loved Thomas Jefferson, but still, he's the apprentice, even in death. In a sense, his historical legacy is at least suggested by the the famous picture of crossing the Delaware, which, you know, is painted decades later and completely apocryphally, you know, George Washington standing up in the middle of this trip across Delaware, which he never would have been doing. And who's in that boat with him but James Monroe, but nobody knows it. That's James Monroe at his feet, you know, forever and on. And that's where he got shot in the shoulder, one of the maybe four American casualties there. He also has a moment where He's going to duel Hamilton in 1797, I think it was. And guess who talks them down is Aaron Burr. <laughs> Aaron you know, Burr. It's like, wow, oh, there we go. You know, saving this guy for me. Yeah, exactly. It's so <laughs> wrapped up. It's so interesting and really fascinating. Thank you so much, Dr. Brooke Poston. What are you working on these days? I want to plug what your newest effort is. Well, I just published a book called Parallel Lives. That's ancient Romans and the American founders, which kind of does like a Washington and Caesar, Adams and Cicero. I wrote that with a Roman historian. And then I'm actually, my second and probably last book on Monroe is called Founder's Curse. And it's about Monroe and political parties and his relationships with all these people we're talking about and that should be with Johns Hopkins Press next year sometime. I'll be looking for it. Thanks for joining us, Brooke. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hello, folks. Thanks for listening to American History Hit. Each week, we release new episodes. Two new episodes dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of great content, like mysterious missing colonies to powerful political movements to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great. But you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.